Hello, everyone, and welcome to a brand new episode of Vodka O'Clock Podcast. I'm your host, Amber Love, and you can find out all of the information about the show and my work at amberonmass.com. The show and things like my books and weekly stories are all supported by the Patreon backers. You would go to patreon.com slash amberonmasked for as little as a dollar a month, and, you know, they get first dibs on things like my silly cat stories and um, news and other exciting things. But of course, um, I still try to put out comic news uh, right away as soon as I get that. So joining me today is Bodhi Paksha, and we are going to talk about writing and yoga and meditating and self-care and all kinds of information and, and just also having a lot of fun with quotes because I read his latest book about quotes that are attributed to the Buddha. And we're going to just get into that because it's hilarious and you're learning about Buddhism without even knowing it. <laughs> so Bodhi Paksha, welcome to the show. Hello, Amber. Hi. So um, yeah, I, I was really excited. I forget how I, I met you through Instagram through somebody else who like mentioned you and then started seeing all of this, you know, these great posts with you and your kids and um, realized how many books you have out. And just in the nick of time, I got one, this one, um, I can't believe it's not Buddha through NetGalley and just had the time of my life reading this book. <laughs> I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm very pleased to hear that you thought it was hilarious. I did. I mean, it, it. You know, it's just one of those things where it's you can take take such deep philosophy, and then to lighten it up is truly a gift. It's well, not dry. My <laughs> my aim is to have people reading uh, about Buddha quotes on the toilet. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, I want it to be that accessible. It it is. It is. Um, so. It was fabulous that um, when I was reviewing the book, I pointed out how you called me out on on misquoting um, Maya Angelou. And it's because you were so familiar with quotes. You're not the only one. Well, I'm, I'm not familiar with every quote, of course. The, the world is full of quotes, but uh, th there are certain ones that crop up over and over again. And I basically have an assumption these days that if I see a quote... Um, I, I just assume that it's probably wrong, <laughs> and and so I investigate. Uh, if, certainly, if it's a a quote, I think I might want to to reuse myself. And I happen to have seen that uh, Maya Angelou one before. Yeah, I've I've tried checking as often as possible now because of that, and because um, like brainy quote, uh, you know, you just can't quite trust. And no, I have this. Not at all. I have this not at all. And I have this quotes creator app and it is the worst. I mean, it makes beautiful images, mm. but I find that the quotes that it, it chooses are just the worst. So, uh, you mm. know, <laughs> well, it, it brings up, you know, a really interesting question about how do we verify things and, you know, what do we trust? And a lot of people, if they're going to verify a quote, will just put it into Google and, you know, it comes up a lot that this quote is by Maya Angelou or by the Buddha or whatever. And they think, well, well, uh, basically the thinking is I saw it on the internet, so it must be true. So it must you be know, true. It, I saw it in a lot of different places on the internet, so it must be true. But if you want to verify a quote, you really have to go back to uh, something a bit more authoritative than that, you know, preferably uh, 
a primary source, you know, something that has actually been written by Maya Angelou, or in the case of the Buddha, since he didn't write anything, something that's in the Buddhist scriptures. And I, I think a lot of people really just don't know how to verify information, which is a bit of a problem, because that crops up not just with Buddha quotes and Maya Angelou quotes, but things like, you know, news stories, which right. has been a bit of a problem recently. And um, one of the problems with news stories, and this I'm sure doesn't, it's just so much easier to make the mistakes today, it, is that they can take part of a quote, like a sentence from a whole speech, and if you isolate just that sentence without context, it can mean something entirely different. That is actually quite common, especially in... Uh, well, not so much, uh, you know, official newspapers like you know, the New York Times or Washington Post or something like that, but the more, uh, you know, political websites uh, that, that tend to circulate a lot of stories. Sometimes they're trying to fuel our outrage uh, and they can be you know, both on the, the left and right wing. And often they're, they're saying, somebody said such and such. And, you know, when you look, they didn't say that at all. Right, right. And, and... And it's one of those things where even if you sway to that side and you want to believe, uh, you know, and be supportive of whatever side you fall on, it's just, you know, sometimes you still need to call it out and just be like, well, that's, that is really out of context and we can right. be mad about other yeah. things. We don't have to be mad about that. Right. And actually that gets you into interesting territory as well, because, um, I mean, my views would generally be described as being liberal. And I see people who are liberals posting quotes repeatedly that I know are incorrect. Uh, so there might be quotes, for example, from uh, the U.S. founding fathers. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I've come across these quotes before. I've researched them before. And I know that they're inaccurate, taken out of context or whatever. And I'll point this out. And instantly you become the enemy. Right. You're identified with being a you know a Trump supporter or something like that if you challenge the authenticity of a quote that's been put forward by um, by someone who's liberal, and it's it's that tribalized that you can't uh, you know even do fact checking without being accused of being on the other side. Yeah, and Snopes.com is of course like everybody's savior. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so when it came to going back to quotes attributed to the Buddha, as you said, we don't have exact scriptures. And with most religious texts, they were in ancient languages that then got translated and translated and translated. So how did you get to the point where you feel that that you found reliable source material? Well, we do have scriptures. Uh, there are Buddhist scriptures. There's a lot of them, which in itself is a little bit of a problem when you're trying to verify things. Um, the thing about them is that the Buddha himself didn't write anything down. He, he, he was around at a time in India, which was just before stuff started to be written down. Um, and the way things had been passed on up to that point was that they were repeated orally. 
So we have these things that we call texts. You know, there are lots of pre-Buddhist texts like the the, the Rig Veda and, and uh, Upanishads and, and things like that, which were already in existence. And, and we call them texts, but actually they were um, passed on orally. And that's what happened with the Buddha's teachings as well, um, that they were memorized or at least the, the gist of them was, was memorized and they were passed on. And that went on for several hundred years until finally they were written down. And, uh, well, I mean, there's lots of things I could say about that. Uh, they, they weren't all written down in one language. They were written down in a number of different places at roughly the same time in a number of different languages. And we can compare those with each other. And we know that there are, there are some differences, but that on the whole, the, the message and uh, the, you know, the, the, the specific content are, are generally pretty close. Okay, so when somebody is um, thinking about something like materialism or personal wealth and they come across a quote or they just have this belief because they don't, they're not a Buddhist student um, and they're not a practitioner of it and they are trying to get into something like yoga and they, there are these great misunderstandings often that oh, you need to renounce everything and, oh, you mm. shouldn't be charging mm. for your services. And right. I've seen right. a lot of that where, oh, oh, yoga should be free. And I'm like, um, but we have to pay for a building and we have to, mm. you know, mm. <laughs> pay for your Wi-Fi. Like, we, I mean, there's, <laughs> there's cost. <laughs> yeah, a lot of that is very self-serving. And, you know, if, if people are coming along and doing your yoga classes and regarding it as being in any way a spiritual practice, um one of the things that the Buddha repeated over and over again is that the first spiritual practice that we should do is giving and that the most important thing we can do is to give to spiritual teachers. So although a lot of us have moved to more toward a model of uh, charging, there was never an assumption that uh, teachings would be free. You know, there may not be a set charge for them, but there was an expectation that teachers would be supported. So if um, you know if people are complaining about your, you know your charges for for classes, um, uh, well, we, you know we're operating in a very different uh, context from, you know, say two thousand two thousand five hundred years ago, and we kind of have to adapt. I think. Yeah, I think so. So how do, how do we come to the translation of of what was meant when we see things like, um, you know, that that you you have the permission of the Buddha to run a household. I know there are probably various quotes about about um, non possessiveness, as we say. Well, you know, well, first of all, just something about the language there that uh, yeah. you know, the Buddha didn't give us permission uh, to do anything. He wasn't an authority figure. And he didn't set up rules saying that you're not allowed to do this, you're not allowed to do that. What he did was he, in in terms of ethical training, you're you're talking about you know morality. He he offered guidelines. He said, well, if you do this, then you're likely to to suffer as a result. So, for example, if you're if you're mean, uh, if you're unpleasant to people, if you lie, 
there's going to be consequences for you and for other people and it's going to cause suffering. On the other hand, if you practice generosity and kindness and if you're honest, then those will tend to result in you having a life that's more satisfying, more harmonious uh, and in, in which you're happier. Yeah, I'm glad that you that you mentioned that that the um you know that the Buddha didn't see himself as an authority figure. Yeah, uh, definitely not. But it, uh, to come back to your your question about, you know, the household life, for example, there there were certainly a lot of teachings that were aimed specifically at monks and nuns who weren't supposed to own anything. They were, you know, they had their robes, they had a bowl for begging food from door to door. There were a few other things that they were allowed to carry around with them, like, you know, I think maybe a, a needle and thread for repairing their robes and some medicines and, and things like this. But basically they weren't supposed to own anything and were supposed to practice complete renunciation. However, it was also a very valid form of practice to be a householder. And there are quite a lot of teachings for householders as well. And householders were actually encouraged to make money. Uh, they were given the, the Buddha's blessing, so to speak. Well, he, he certainly encouraged them to create wealth, um, to be thoughtful and creative in their work. And um, the important thing was not to get too attached to this wealth uh, that you were creating. And to use it to, to benefit people, use it to benefit your family. So if a cousin, for example, was having a hard time, an aunt or uncle had you know needed medical treatment or something, you would use your wealth to help them. And most importantly, you were supposed to show uh, non-attachment to your wealth by supporting teachers, by supporting spiritual teachers. And it wasn't specified that it had to be Buddhist teachers. There was just a sense... There's a sense in the Buddhist scriptures that supporting anyone who is promoting spiritual values, by which I mean basically you know, living a life that's intentional, uh, mindful, and compassionate, uh, supporting anyone who's doing that is going to be beneficial in some way. Yeah, I, and I think that's um, it, there's a lot of crossover through religions about that and it gets abused <laughs> terribly do, yeah. um, um we see that you know here in the states i don't know how it is elsewhere but um yeah all the televangelists evangelists yes, yes, yes. and they're <clears throat> giant castles and jets and fleets of cars and huge staff yeah, yeah. A, a friend of mine uh was quoting a very very old british radio comedy show the other day in which uh, there was a character who used to uh, utter the line open your wallets and repeat uh, and repeat after me help yourself <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i think um i it's just i understand the 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 emotions that are attached to to the to faith in general and when you hear somebody that has that presence and they're talented speakers and you know um as they said like you know through the radio 
uh, Nixon would have beat Kennedy, but because you're watching and there's a mm. presence of Kennedy, it was, oh, he's clearly the one that people voted should vote for or something. And, and mm. it's just, mm. and I think that, that evangelist uh, persona, it just, it comes out not just in faith based, uh, you know, discussions, but it, it's this talent of mesmerizing a crowd. Yeah. So it's yep. just, it's easy to, to part people with their money, I guess, if you have whatever that is. Well, that's probably behind some of the suspicion of people coming along to yoga classes or meditation classes and, you know, seeing that it's being charged for. Um, they assume that your motivation is primarily to make money and probably people assume that you have a lot more money than you actually have. Probably. Yeah, it's, it, you know, and I, I w yeah, with the yoga industry, the fact that it's such a commercialized industry now, mm. I can't even imagine what, you know, if they had a crystal ball to look into 2000 years ago, what they would be thinking of this with the, the commercialization. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sure even the Buddha was familiar with people who were, uh, you know, amassing wealth through through being teachers one way or another. I, it's, I suspect that is not entirely a new phenomenon, although we have new ways of doing things, you know, using television and um, having yoga franchises. And I believe these days uh, some people are uh, uh, trademarking or, or yes. patenting yoga poses or, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just strange. Yeah. And 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 his stuff is so much, you know, it's owned by corporations. It's not even your own work anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I I certainly I'm not a corporation, <laughs> <laughs> and I don't have a jet. <laughs> you don't have a jet. No. Otherwise, you could have just popped down here, and we could just do this uh, in person in the, in yeah, a park. Yeah, It'd be great. Be, that would be handy. <laughs> um. Now, in the uh, the quotations book, the I can't believe it's not Buddha. I I also found it really enlightening because I was born in the seventies, so I didn't quite get all of the sixties um, knowledge, or and I haven't really studied a lot of a lot of that. But like New Age, as we say, just came like really naturally to, to at least to me, and not really understanding where its roots were and any cultural appropriation. And I, I was fascinated in the part of the book where you talk about how the present moment, we talk about that in mm, meditation mm. so often nowadays, and that it's not something the Buddha even mentioned. No, it's a very new concept, really. It didn't start being talked about till, uh, well, as you, as you said, the, the 1960s. It was actually a surprise to me as I was putting the book together to see some of the, the common threads. Um, you probably noticed uh, repeated references to something called New Thought, which yes. was, um, I think it was late, very late 19th century, early 20th century that started emerging. And uh, it was partly rooted in a growing understanding of uh, Hinduism uh, as well. Uh, and I think also a sort of, you know, uh, maybe demythologized Christianity and the kind of an, a beginnings of uh, the understandings of psychology. And there was a very, very strong influence 
uh, of the idea that we create our, our own lives through our thinking, that we create our, not just our lives, but our reality uh, through the way that, that we're thinking. And a lot of those ideas uh, are found in these Buddha quotes. Uh, that to me was quite a surprise to discover the extent to which uh, uh, you know, some of these uh, new age uh, teachers were all connected with each other and connected with Hinduism. Yeah, and it's uh, like I, I mean, I probably had, you know, the the phrase "new thought" in a history class. I just don't remember it, and um, because we we did have, I don't even know what they, how they they do um, they break stuff down in classes anymore in high school. But we had social studies, and it was specifically to talk about world religions right. and different different <laughs> cultures. And I remember getting confused between Hinduism and Buddhism back then. Uh, you know, it's like the the tenets, at least, sounded so similar. And yet it's, you know, there's also the Ten Commandments, which sound kind of similar. Um, uh, but there's, there are differences. And there's, you know, especially when we talk about India, how it's a big geographic region. So same thing with China. There's such a, it's a big geographic region. Mm, it's mm. not just one language. So how do you, you know, how did you find your own way to to Buddhism and to the specific path of Buddhism that, that you're on? Right. Well, it goes back a long way um, because I'm old. Um, <laughs> so when I was at high school in the, uh, the 1970s, um, I was doing some spiritual seeking, I guess. I, I'd already been an atheist for some time. I think even in elementary school, I'd decided that the concept of a you know personal god, uh, creator god, just didn't really make much sense to me. And um, so I and I was, but I still had this sense that I needed to make sense of life, and I needed tools to help me be less miserable because I was just in my teens. I was just doing a lot of suffering. Uh, a lot of friends, for example, uh, left my school and went off to to other places. And uh, it's a very difficult thing when you're a teenager to have a lot of your friends leave at the same time. So I got I felt quite kind of isolated. So I was reading a little bit about, you know, philosophy and religion and things like that. And, and Buddhism was interesting to me because it was a non-theistic religious tradition. Uh, as it said, the idea of a personal God didn't really make that much sense to me. But here was this tradition that seems to be a bit more reasonable, a bit more uh, rational, uh, and also practical. And, and that was interesting to me as well, um, because, as I said, I was looking for some kind of tools to help me suffer less. And the idea of being able to meditate, and that is or at least how I understood that at the time, was to be able to look inside yourself for sources of happiness rather than depend on the outside world for, for happiness. That was very, very attractive to me. So I read um, a couple of books on Buddhism. There really weren't in the you know, mid to, to late 70s. There was almost nothing that was available. I read a couple of books. They weren't particularly helpful. I read um, what I now know is not a very good translation of a Buddhist text <laughs> called the, the Dhammapada. 
Ah, um, I see. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that did have a big impact on me. Um, and then a couple of years later, when I went to university, I saw meditation classes advertised and I went along and you know, it just kind of made sense. It clicked with me and I've just kept doing it ever since. How do you feel about um, the mindfulness movement today that's trying to be um, completely separate from from a higher spirituality in this like like you said with no no deity references but um like John Cabot Zinn's work okay well yeah there is this secular presentation basically of Buddhism uh, calling itself uh, you know secular mindfulness mindfulness based stress reduction etc um and well i would say more it's that they're uh they're presenting themselves as as being secular in order to make uh what they're doing more accessible to to more people um and well actually this brings up the question of you know how secular buddhism is to start with um it's actually a in a way it's a a kind of a secular religion to begin with. I mean, there are cultural traditions, for example, of you know bowing to to Buddha statues and making offerings of incense and things like that. Which you know you're not going to get people doing a mindfulness-based stress reduction class. But almost any of the the core concepts of, of Buddhism, the core practices of Buddhism, you could quite happily introduce to someone and say, "Well, look, here's this sort of positive psychology." from 2,500 years ago and, you know, give this a go and, you know, see if it makes sense to you, try it and, you know, see what effect it has. So, um, yeah, I'm actually, you asked me what I think about it and on the whole, I'm very grateful uh, that people like John Kabat-Zinn have found ways to make uh, the practice of mindfulness more widely available. Um, it can be a bit limited in in the way it presents itself because mindfulness, from a Buddhist point of view, is just one practice, and it's there are various other complementary practices. For example, the the practice of uh, kindness, the practice of compassion, and I think you do get to the point if you're just practicing mindfulness that you're going to hit a limit, and you need to bring in other. Uh, aspects of practice and some of that is emerging now as well right. other researchers uh you know, starting with uh, Kristen neff back in... i was just going to mention her yeah right right yeah. so she is a researcher in uh compassion uh compassion practice compassion meditation and particularly in self-compassion and i think it was as recently as about 2003 that she published a paper on uh, self-compassion and gave a, a kind of a clinical definition of what self-compassion is and just as research into mindfulness has taken off exponentially research into compassion meditation loving kindness meditation self-compassion is also increasing exponentially at, at the moment yeah the the science that i've seen with um john kabat-zinn and the um i think it's called the greater good 
organization. Hmm. It's it, it is interesting. Um, I don't know how large their subject pool is. Uh, you know when they when they do studies, but when you see something like the neuroelasticity uh, of the brain actually can change, so when you're trying to let go of anger hmm. and um, instead channel your attention uh, to more productive uh, thoughts or, mm-hmm. you know, or to meditative thoughts away from anger that eventually you'll train your brain to start taking that different highway that, you know, the right. you change the pathways and change brain. the path. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I think it, I think some people really need to see those MRIs and, and things yeah. like that. They need that to be convinced. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a researcher called uh, Carol Dweck, and she's not involved in mindfulness research, but her field is mindsets. And uh, she's pointed out that we tend to have either a, a fixed mindset or a growth mindset. So some people, for example, think that they're intelligence, which is one of the fields that she's looked into, is something fixed. We have this thing called IQ, and it's, yeah. a, it's as fixed a part of us as, say, our blood type. Um, but there are other people who think that our IQ is fluid, and you can develop it, that you can, for example, uh, train your brain to look at things in more complex ways, to hold more information in mind at one time, to be able to expand your knowledge, to expand your tools for thinking about things. And if you believe, as we used to, as everyone used to believe, that the brain is fixed, then you're going to think that your capacities as a human being, your personality, not just your intelligence, but your levels of anger, your ability to be happy is fixed as well. If you understand, as we now do, that the brain changes, then you're going to be more convinced of your capacity to change as an individual human being. And one of the really fascinating things about some of these studies is that you can actually see physical changes in the, bla- in the brain taking place over just six weeks, which is the, the average length that these uh, mindfulness studies are, are conducted for. And that's really quite remarkable that you can you can see, for example, the the parts of your brain that are responsible for emotional regulation actually getting thicker, and the parts of your brain, like the amygdala, that are responsible for emotional reactivity and the fight and flight response, they actually get smaller eh? just over a, a period of a few weeks. One of the greatest things about that, and the fact that it's um becoming better known is uh, that they've been taking this into schools and into prisons and uh, you know our prison system here uh, certainly needs some you know reform but um, it you know it's I watch a lot of Animal Planet I don't know about you but it's like when you see things like um, taking just actual domesticated animals like cats and dogs and knowing that they have that flight or fight response and you can you can still train them to make them behave hmm. um, more socially, you know, something that's more acceptable. They can have other animals around them. They can have small children around them. And then you see this being taken, you know, to humans with um, the, like I said, the, the prison work that's being done with meditation 
it's it's an interesting thing to just think that anger has to always be present. It's it, it, I don't know if you do you watch Star Trek at all? Do you know Star Trek? Oh, I am a big Star Trek fan and have been okay. since it first came out in the 1960s. Oh, fabulous. So like when I originally watched the original series, I thought that Vulcans just didn't have emotions and I wasn't mm. understanding it and it's mm. like, no, they have all that, but they're working very hard to stay in control. Yeah, they have well-regulated emotions. Yeah. It was very interesting watching, um, was it Star Trek? Oh, what was the the first one that was kind of a a prequel that had, um, oh dear, sorry, I'm terrible at remembering names. It wasn't Star Trek Discovery. Enterprise? Star Trek Enterprise, yeah. So that that was the, the first time that I started really getting... Uh, you know, images and, and more information about Vulcan religion. And I noticed that they, they use a lot of uh, Buddhist imagery. Uh, yes. There, there were actual, you know, Buddhist, sta- not Buddha statues, but Buddhist statues used in their kind of uh, temples, uh, so to speak. That was all quite, quite fascinating. Yeah. And of course, in Star Wars, we have the Force. We do. Yeah. 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 And yeah. the robes are very similar. Yeah, I think someone's written a, a book about the the Dharma of Star Wars. Uh, dharma is a is another term for uh, spiritual teaching, spiritual path, and and it's specifically used in uh, in Buddhism to refer to the Buddhist teachings. I yeah, I love it. I mean, when when we bridge that world of science, and and in this case, science fiction, but you know, there's. There's hope in there that we will be traveling, <laughs> traveling far. Um, there was one particular episode, if you allow me a little digression, yes, uh, on the it. original series. I can't remember what it was called, but um, there's a a transporter malfunction, and we end up with two Captain mm-hmm. Kirks, and one of them has all of his compassionate. Uh, empathetic qualities and the other one has all of his uh, drive and uh, and aggression and uh, that for me was a particularly interesting episode because neither version of Captain Kirk was able to function one was out of control just you know full of you know raw aggression and desire and the other one was indecisive and it wasn't until those two sets of qualities were brought together and were interacting with each other and you know, the, the compassionate qualities regulating the drive, but the drive necessary uh, in order to be able to make decisions. So you can be compassionate, but you also need to be decisive. So it wasn't until all of that was functioning together in a regulated way that Kirk was actually able to be an effective leader. I wonder if that was the mirror universe. Uh, no, that wasn't a mirror universe one. It was a it was a, a different, uh, different episode one. from that. Yeah. Okay. Because yeah, I mean, you have to remember, like you know, you got the goatee. Suddenly, you're you know, badass and right. No, <laughs> uh, in this particular one, Kirk was the only one that. Um, oh, he was the only one. Well, apart there. from a, there was some kind of dog, I think, that also went through the the, the transporter. The transporter. And the, created two versions of it. One of them really nice, and one of them kind of nasty. Oh, interesting. Interesting. I think they're back on Netflix now, so I I need to do a rewatch at some point. I do enjoy the new ones. I I don't know. I know people are very divisive about uh, whether they like Discovery or not, but I happen to love the new Discovery. I'm a little behind on my watching. I'll have to catch up at some point. Yeah. Um, 
but this but talking about the you know the propensity towards anger and rage versus compassion um and this goes whether it's outwardly directed or inwardly directed um brings me to one of my favorite quotes that you have in the book that you um picked apart so nicely was it says holding on to anger is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die yeah yeah that's a good one there's various um versions of that and uh, one of them that i particularly like is uh you know anger or resentment is like uh, eating rat poison and waiting for the rat to die yes and and i've seen it attributed to so many different people yeah well the thing is that that's anonymous and uh you know it came out of the um the 12-step program you know right. al- alcoholics, alcoholics anonymous so <laughs> what tends to happen is that someone comes up with a particular quote and it's useful and it circulates and it finds its way into a particularly elegant and refined form so when that one started off i mean it well it wasn't originally uh anonymous it was uh one of the, the founders of uh alcoholics anonymous i think that came up with it or at least a um, a religious yes, a religious minister that that influenced him, but the the saying gets passed on and it gets polished and it gets refined. It becomes more pithy. It becomes more punchy. It becomes more more humorous. And so essentially, it becomes an anonymous. That whole process is an anonymous process. And people don't like passing on you know, quotes that say anonymous. They would much rather it had the authority of a name attached to it. And so. That's what they'll do. They'll attach a name because yeah, it sounds better if you say the Buddha said it, or if you say that, you know, some famous novelist said it. There's also the when when somebody who's in our present time quoting somebody in a work of their own, you know, like I'm sure you know, Bill Gates has probably quoted people, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Steve Jobs has probably quoted people, and uh, you know, Carnegie's. I mean, there there's. What's happening is then they get the credit yeah. of the quote, um, you know, just by by the fact that they used it. Um, but I also like how you say quotation promotion <laughs> that you know somebody who's just not known and they're like, well, we're just going to stick somebody famous on here. Right. Yes, I inver- invented um, someone called uh, Ethel Fishbaum in in my book. Who uh, yeah. she's actually quoted, quoted a couple of times, but no one wants to pass on quotes by Ethel Fishbaum. They would much rather say it was by uh, Einstein or Winston Churchill or the Buddha. Yeah, and and oh, what did come up right right around this part was uh, where you mentioned that something was actually Madame Curie, and um, and it's interesting that we say Madame over here instead of Doctor, but. Um, that is interesting, isn't it? I never thought about that. Yeah. Um, you know, but like how often women's words were just, you know, just like their papers and all of their other early works uh, had to have a man's name attached mm-hmm. instead. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's one of the great tragedies of our times is that so many uh, you know, female scientists were overlooked and uh, not encouraged. And well, in fact, so many women did not become scientists because they were... Um, you know, dissuaded from doing that because it was seen as being man's work. I keep thinking how much further along we would be if we you know, fully tapped into the, the talent pool that's available to us. Right, yeah. And, uh, you know, hopefully 
it's encouraged <laughs> encouraged more now. Yeah, it's getting better, I think. But you know, we're digressing quite a bit. But uh, you know, I pay attention to the uh, you know some of the sexism and misogyny that you see in the scientific world, and uh, you know even in the the atheist world as well. You know, people that are touting themselves as being you know, atheists and rationalists, they actually have all of these untransformed emotions that they're not really aware of and and just acting out in ways that hurt other people and hurt society as a whole. Yeah, and um but it's okay to digress. I mean, this is a whole big conversation that we're having. Oh, I mean, yeah, and we're, we're talking about emotional regulation, aren't we? And it, yes. Just if it, can I go back to the prison thing? Because that, yes. that's particularly interesting to me. I actually taught meditation yeah. in prisons for for about well, six is, years. Yeah, this is fascinating. So I want to um, hear about this. Yeah, well, it was a fantastic experience. It was it was really great. Um, I had to stop doing it after uh, my wife, no, my ex-wife, uh, and I uh, adopted two children and. I just had to focus much more on family and being able to earn enough to feed the kids and things like that. Couldn't take as much time off off work. But uh, I think when I first went into prisons, I was dreading it a little bit. I I expected that I was going to be in the the presence of all of these people who were, you know, seething with barely controlled, you know, anger and violence. And actually, I found that I was with. Like a really nice bunch of guys, you know. They they were very very grateful to see you. Very grateful to have you coming in from from the outside. Um, I I wasn't the person that established the meditation group that uh, I went to. Uh, somebody else who recently passed away uh, had done that a number of years before me, and I was just joining in. So some of these guys had been doing quite a lot of work on themselves for for a lot of time, and they were. Uh, they came across as being very thoughtful and warm and compassionate and they really reflected upon themselves a lot and they offered each other a lot of support and a lot of wisdom as well. It was really quite a remarkable experience. I I love it because it's, you know, we, we hear about repeat offenders and just horrible offenses and people think that there's no such thing as rehabilitation. It's just not possible. And last night I got to watch um, a, a, a program. I mean, it was the it was Jackson Galaxy's show, My Cat from Hell. And but there's a program that somebody has in a prison called Meow Mates, and they bring cats into the prison, and um, they they have to live. So these guys who have no chance of getting out. I mean, and they sound like you're saying, they just sound like normal, regular guys. And, and they're just, they have these cats and kittens that they have to take care of and they have to raise and they have to love and something loves them back. There are not many opportunities in uh, prison to show affection, you know, to, to be vulnerable uh, in that way and to, to trust Uh, a lot of guys in prison are just like constantly on their guard. And, you know, that doesn't help with rehabilitation at all, the sort of culture of fear. Right. And, and I mean, for those of us who are not in prison, we still have to work on ourselves and work on our, on our self-loathing yeah. <laughs> that uh, is so prevalent, especially, and it's, you know, I don't know if it's just in the arts world or if it just happens to be that I'm in the arts world. So 
I see it. Um, but the it's not even like doubt. I think doubt is normal, but yeah. the self hatred yeah. and unkindness towards ourselves is um, it's so painful. And yeah. um, you know, you mentioned that you've. I don't even know how many books you're up to at this point, but you've got another book in the in the works about to come out. Um, and you talk all about compassion and, uh, um, so even though compassion is part of the, you know, the other books, I'm sure, and, and just part of Buddhism, how did you come to isolate just compassion towards self and decide that this had to be a book? Well, well, first of all, I haven't really written that many books. I have, uh, quite a lot of CDs that was uh, something I did I've, I've done quite a lot of it I had maybe about 12 CDs and audiobooks as far as um, actual paperback books go um, I think it's maybe my fourth that's just about to come out and you know I have a chapter in you know maybe a couple of other books um, the, the one you were referring to uh, isn't it just about to come out the, the one that's just about to come out is I can't believe okay. it's not Buddha but uh, just this morning I sent off uh, a proposal with some sample chapters to, to my publisher for a book on self-compassion so that, just to just to clarify in case anyone is anxiously expecting my book on self-compassion to come out any moment yeah. I don't even know if it's going to be published I've just sent in the proposal and I'm, oh, I'm, okay. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. Um, anyway, yeah, self-compassion has been it's been an important part of my practice and an important part of my teaching for quite a few years now. And it came about just because I went through a period where there was just an enormous amount of suffering in my life, um, a lot of anxiety, uh, a lot of a lot of disruption, a lot of change, uh, which is of course often quite quite difficult to, to deal with. Um, I, you know, I won't go into all of the details, but I, I had problems with the, the IRS, the, for anyone who's listening who's outside the United States, that's the, the tax, the US government uh, tax people, um, because my tax accountant didn't file my business taxes two years in a row. Oops. So, yeah, yeah, I... I <laughs> She led me to believe she had, but she she hadn't. She'd had some kind of personal crisis. So I then ended up with the the IRS uh, chasing me for thirty five thousand dollars in penalties, which is a lot oh. of lot of money. Uh, I ended up not having to pay any of that because it, it wasn't my my fault. But in the intervening time, my wife, who's now my ex wife, had gone into a panic because the IRS were threatening to seize our assets, and she wanted to put as much. Uh, well, there's a number of things going on. She, she, first of all, she, she wanted to put some financial distance between us. And also, she saw this as being my fault. Um, and I guess, you know, a sort of betrayal of my, my role in, the, uh, in our relationship. And so she filed for divorce. We had two children who at that time were, uh, I think, five and three. Um, that was incredibly painful, the whole process of going through the divorce, the, you know, realizing that you're not going to be seeing your children every day anymore as you're used to. It's going to be much more rationed. Um, and I was a very, very involved father, so that was incredibly painful. I said I wasn't going to go into detail, and here I am. Um, <laughs> I, 
I had to move house you know several times you know I think there was one year where I was living in like three or four different places and you know had a period of a few weeks where I was homeless I wasn't on the street but I was couch surfing um my doctor spotted this lump inside my ear which turned out to be cancer I didn't have health insurance at the time oh, yeah. that was very stressful I managed to get health insurance thanks Obama um but uh it was like the cheaper end of the uh, Obamacare spectrum and it didn't cover most of the cost of the surgery. So I ended up with, you know, financial problems that was threatening to bring the business I was running down. You know, just like one thing after another, all of these like almost existential crises, huge amounts of anxiety. Uh, waking that up. is so much stress. That is it just is. an well, unbelievable. This energy. is over a period. Uh, what I've just described to you is over a period of maybe uh, two to three years. So it's a mass. It's a ma- it is a massive amount of stress, and there were other things, you know, going on as well. And I, I would find myself uh, having these horrible nightmares. I would wake up at uh, you know, in the middle of the night with my heart beating, just you know, full of anxiety and I had to really work uh, a much much deeper level than I ever had before uh, offering myself kindness and reassurance and you know taking care of myself so that really got me you know much more into the field of self-compassion which is not just about dealing with these huge crises but it's about just being a kind of kind and supportive presence uh, for for yourself, um, being able to offer yourself a little bit of support, a little bit of kindness, a little bit of warmth, just as you're going through the very very ordinary little sufferings that we experience in in daily life, and so yeah, that's become really the main thing that I teach these days. Well, I certainly hope that things are on an upswing by now. <laughs> oh, they are. Yeah, for me, yeah, very much. I mean, there's still stresses in life, you know, particularly some financial stresses but um yeah definitely thank you uh, for for that concern but yeah things are, yes. are much better than they were well i do i do love uh, you know it it shows how much you love your children like i, I said uh, on your instagram there's all, all these pictures of you know going to africa and mm. um you know so you so you have these two kids and they grow up you know and it's just like oh no and you don't want to miss any parts of that it's an amazing teaching, actually, just watching how much they, they change. I've just you know, learned a lot through that. And um, also, it's just, a, it's just a huge responsibility, you know, recognizing that you have a major impact on the long-term happiness and well-being of two human beings. And so do they think you're like a super cool dad or do they think you're just like kind of a, a you know, a, a strange hippie that like, you know, talks about Buddha? I have never actually asked them what they think of me i mean <laughs> they they say they love me um good good i think they appreciate the fact that although i'm not perfect i i i own up to my imperfections so like sometimes i'll get stressed and i'll yell at them i will always apologize immediately after yelling at them uh i always say i'm sorry you know i shouldn't have done that um i was stressed and i wasn't handling it very well and they make it clear that it's it's me. You know, I, I'm the problem when I'm yelling. It's not them. They don't deserve to be yelled at. 
um, they deserve to be treated with kindness. And so when I'm apologizing, I'm, I'm emphasizing all of that to them. And I know they appreciate that because, you know, we don't get into these long kind of, you know, awkward periods where you have been unpleasant to someone and then you're trying to pretend it never happened, which mm-hmm. doesn't really, I've seen that happen. And, and you know, I've done that in the past and it just doesn't really work very well. Yeah, I have a really different background. So um, like my dad was a truck driver who worked at night. So we pretty much saw him on Sundays um, just mm. because of sleep schedules. Um, and, uh, you know, there were definitely anger issues there. Um, so, it, you know, the just being able to freely say how much you love somebody, it's, you know, it's not something that every family has. Right, yeah. And I didn't hear that kind of thing very much in, in my family either. Um well, I think one of the things about self-compassion that's really important is recognizing where it is you've come from and what are the influences that have shaped you and that you didn't choose a lot of those things. Um, you're very much influenced by the early role models that you had. And yeah, in my life, you know, I, I love my parents. They're, they're fantastic. They tried really hard. Um, they were of course, the products of their own conditioning. And Scottish culture tends... I'm from Scotland, if anyone hadn't recognised that. Uh, <laughs> Scottish culture tends to be uh, quite critical, um, not very suspicious of overt displays of affection. And so I, you know, I didn't see a lot of modelling of kindness when I was growing up. I did see a lot of modelling of criticism. And so that, you know, that was part of my personality. Um, and it's something I really had to, to work to overcome. And when I have these slips and I yell at my kids, I am very aware of the fact that this is just me you know, acting out old conditioning. And so I don't beat myself up about it. You know, I don't give myself a hard time. I don't, I don't blame myself. Oh, body picture, you're so stupid. You know, you're such a horrible person. You yelled at your kids. Yeah, I, I just, I've learned to just not to do that. Because it's just not helpful. It's not compassionate. The, th- the thing is just to recognize that, you know, you are, you are who you are. It's the product of, of the past. But how you act right now is going to change who you are in the future. And it's going to shape who you are. And, you know, so meditation, just like other, you know, treatments or medicines, aren't going to miraculously make something cured or or healed by itself it's a you know it's it's a long slow process and and, uh, it's only you know part of what you're doing you're trying to bring more mindfulness and more compassion into your everyday activities Um, some people will find uh, therapy useful just for again you know getting that kind of understanding of where it is that you come from why it is that you behave the way you do why it is that you've got these you know particular things that you're scared of or or whatever yeah and um as we said this i i think it just ties in universally in that um i have no idea who started this quote but the one where um you know it said that you have to put on your own oxygen mask first when the plane is going down before you help the person next to you. Yeah. Um, and you know, and, and so you should take that into everyday life. You should, you know, you need to help yourself first because if you are a total wreck and disaster, you're not going to be of use to anyone else. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think the, the Buddha talked about that as well. I, I can't quote the exact words, but there was a couple of couple. Of when he was going things. down on his jet, and there was a you know, drop <laughs> in a cab impression. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he talked about it in different terms. Um, <laughs> you know, the first time I, I remember noticing that thing about the oxygen mask, I was thinking that that was my very first thought was, wow, that is a really fantastic teaching on self compassion. But the Buddha talked about it in terms of you know, if you've fallen in a river you're not in a, in a position to be able to help someone get out of it. So the first thing you've got to do is, you know, scramble out onto the bank yourself and then you can help other people to, to get out of the river. And I think he talked about that in terms of like falling into a ditch as well. If you've fallen into uh, a ditch, you kind of have to get yourself out before you can help other people out. I think that's great. And, you know, and it's, it's nice that, you know, through all of these thousands of years that, the teachings still are are impressed upon us and even i mean you know who knows if there's ever such a thing as original thought but the you know the fact that there's people all over the world that can teach this in their own way yeah well you know there's certain universal principles that just keep coming up over and over again um the the buddha although he although he gave moral teachings he wasn't uh, a moralist at all uh, he was a psychologist really oh well, i think of him almost as a kind of an engineer kind of you know recognizing how it is that the mind works and learning how you can work with that in order to produce uh, a better life for yourself so he said some really radical things um, he talked about things like you know greed and anger and stuff like that and he said i'm not telling you uh I, I, well, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but he said, I'm not telling you to give up things like greed and anger because they're bad. I'm telling you to give them up because they make you unhappy. Um, he said, if greed and anger made you happy, I wouldn't tell you to give them up. <laughs> he, he, was, he, he really was concerned with the quality of our lives, the quality of experience that we produce in our lives and whether we're producing suffering for ourselves and others or whether we're producing a sense of well-being and peace for ourselves and others. And so where he was giving moral teachings and saying, well, you know, don't be greedy, don't be, well, or at least work at not being greedy, work at not being angry, work, you know, let go of hatred, all of that kind of thing. He wasn't saying that just because he thought those things were evil. Uh, he was saying that because he thought, those things really are just unhelpful. They're unhelpful to us. They're unhelpful to, to other people. Yeah. The, in, in the quotations book, and I can't believe it's not Buddha. You do talk about and explain this, um, that personal experience, you know, comes up over and over again and that you shouldn't just follow things on blind faith. Um, you know, and I, I think that's, it's, Sometimes I th- I wish that it didn't have to be that way, you know, like you could put yourself in someone else's shoes and just be sympathetic, for, you, know, you know, automatically. But there are times when people just need to have an experience of their own in, in order for them to see the light on certain things. Yeah. It's, I don't I don't even know how to how to get around that. It just, you know. It happens. Yeah, sometimes you just have to let people, you know, make their own mistakes. You can give them advice. You can say, hey, you know, 
if you do that it's probably not going to work out very well but you know sometimes they just have to go ahead and make mistakes and realize these things for themselves yeah yeah and that's you know and it's just interesting to me that that this that was more of the buddhist teachings was about um you know experience and and just living life yeah yeah it's very much about uh everyday life it's about the here and now it's about how we're relating to our experiences about how we're relating to other people um there are teachings about you know rebirth and cosmology and stuff like that but i'm not actually convinced that those are things that the the buddha taught Mm -hmm. um there are some interesting things like there's there's one very famous teaching um where the buddha talks about um how you can know whether something is true or not and he gives a list of all the things that you can't rely on so you know don't rely on the fact that something's in a scripture don't rely on the fact that someone who's you know our teacher said this don't rely on it something because it's just traditional and it's said over and over again he said, you know, rely on your, your own experience and rely on the testimony of the wise and see whether particular practices, when put into practice, bring about happiness or suffering. So that bit is pretty well known, often misquoted, and I refer to that in the book. But there's another later bit where the same people that have been asking this question about how do you know something is true or not are asking about uh, the teaching of rebirth. And what the Buddha said to them was, it doesn't really make any difference whether you believe in rebirth or not. If you believe that acting well now, acting with uh, with awareness, acting with compassion right now, is going to give you a better rebirth, then that's great. He said, if you think that this is the only life you're going to have, then acting out of awareness, acting out of compassion, is going to give you a better life right now. Which is, you know, quite a a radical kind of a teaching, really. I mean, he, he obviously, in, in that particular teaching, was not saying, well, you, you have to believe in rebirth or, or anything like that. And there's, there's one other place in a very, a, a teaching that's generally regarded as being particularly ancient. And there's reasons, all kinds of reasons for thinking that this might be a, a, an ancient stratum of, uh, of the teachings. There's another place where he says that where the only reference he makes to rebirth is that it's one of these things that people uh, cling to, you know, that people have these opinions about and that just causes suffering. Uh, so he suggests, he seems to be suggesting or uh, implying that we shouldn't have any views about rebirth. So I'm happy with that because, you know, I tend to be pretty rationalist. I'm not going to say, yes, there's this thing called rebirth because I can't verify that in my own experience. And to me, it's not honest to say that something is the case when you, you don't actually know it's the case. Saying you think something is the case is fine. That's honest. But saying, yes, there is rebirth, when actually you don't have any evidence or any way of proving that there is rebirth, to me, that's, that's not an ethical position to take. In Buddhism, uh, I, and because I'm really, you know, barely, barely touched the surface of... Uh, of these these philosophies, um, aren't isn't the Buddha like reborn into different people, and then they get these the title, and they're raised as like the next incarnation of the Karmapa or something or other? Right. Yeah. You're you're thinking of um, the, what's called the the Tulku 
system in uh, in Tibetan Buddhism. So uh, yeah, they're very much firm believers in rebirth, and there's kind of lineages. So the Dalai Lama, for example, the, the person we call the Dalai Lama is actually the fourteenth Dalai Lama. And he's, right. su- he's supposed to be the same person as the 13th Dalai Lama and the 12th Dalai Lama, et cetera, et cetera. So what, what they do um, in Tibet is that when a famous teacher, like the Dalai Lama, and there's a whole bunch of these lineages, when that person dies, um, they go out looking for the, the new incarnation uh, of that person. And they have little tests that they do. So they... They might have items that belonged to the the previous incarnation, and they see whether the the the, the child, who's often quite young, uh, shows some kind of preference uh, for that. It all sounds very impressive, but if you actually look at what's going on, it's not exactly kind of you know double blind controlled scientific <laughs> kind of process. It's very, it's very subjective, and there's people there who knew the old, um, the old incarnation, and who know which items belong to him, for example. So, yeah, from a methodological point of view, the whole process is extremely dodgy, and uh. Uh, some of the the people who have been brought up as these, you know, incarnate lamas, as they call them, have said, well, you know, actually, I'm not sure if I believe in the whole thing. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So I don't have any memories of, of a past life or anything like that. So, you know, who knows? That's pretty wild. Yeah, there's, and the, and there are, um, but that is something, if, if anybody else is interested in, in any kind of spiritual teachings and you want to know more about Buddhism, there's just, it, it as like, with Hinduism, there's just a variety of different paths. So yeah, yeah, I, I would say that you know Buddhism is kind of well. Or I'm going to say books on on Buddhism, teachings on Buddhism are kind of it's like its own world, and you get the same mythology being passed on from from one book to another. So, for example. Just about any book on Buddhism that you pick up that talks about the Buddha's life story will talk about how the Buddha was a prince and he was brought up in these three palaces and his father was determined that he wasn't going to get involved in any kind of religion or anything like that. He was going to grow up to be a you know, political leader. and uh, But that the, the Buddha was kind of curious, or the Buddha-to-be was, was curious, and he went out and he saw these four sites, which are uh, an old person, a sick person, someone who was uh, dead, and uh, fourthly, um, a religious wanderer, someone who, who was a, a religious teacher, a religious practitioner, who was just you know walking from village to village, and that these four sites inspired him to leave home in the middle of the night. Um, and there's a whole story around about this. The thing is, if you look back at the original Buddhist scriptures, yes, there is the story of the four sites, but it's a story the Buddha told about somebody else. I mean, it's it's right there. It's right in the scriptures that this was the Buddha <laughs> talking about some earlier mythological religious figure. It wasn't about himself. And yet, literally every book about Buddha, well, almost every book, 99% of them, that talk about the life of the Buddha are going to tell you about these four sites. 
Um, it's there, right there in the scriptures that the Buddha talked about how his mother and father wept when he left, uh, when, when he was a young man. So the whole thing about him sneaking out in the middle of the night doesn't seem to be true either. So that, you know, there's all of this sort of, there's this body of mythology that just gets passed on quite uncritically from one person to another. And I'm, I'm quite suspicious of, uh, of how that happens <laughs> and suspicious of the, um, I guess, the, the, the way in which Buddhists just often take things on trust like that without going back and looking at the evidence that we actually have. Uh, but that's something, you know, as, as we've been talking about, how people want to believe in stories and quotations and they, you know, yeah. they want to believe that this is, you yeah. know, the words of this person that they revere. Yeah. And, or even if it's, you know, uh, there's people quoting the Buddha who have nothing to do with Buddhism, you know, so, um, it, as you say, the um, in the book you refer to hallmark spirituality as in greeting cards, and um, just people want this motivational push sometimes. Um, mm. It's interesting. It's interesting because some of it I really want to argue with when I see it too. Um, you want to argue with me or with the? No, the not of, with you. This. With when I see these um, motivational quotes and. Um, you know, I, I mean, it's one thing to argue, who, you know, the the credentials of, of who actually said something. But when you come across, uh, there's one that's like, um, you know, it's really common to tell people like, oh, if you dream about it, you can achieve it kind right. of yes. kind of philosophy. Yeah, and absolutely. it's like, it's yeah. like, you know, you, you can't you can't dream a person out of a disease. Yeah. You can't, dream, you right. know, right. It, well that, well, that was part of this whole new thought thing. The, the whole Christian science movement grew out of new thought. The idea that you could actually literally think yourself out of a disease because they believed that you had thought yourself into it in, right. in the first place. But yeah, yeah. And, it is, and, you know, therein lies danger. I mean, some of it's inspirational and some of it's motivating. And, you know, and it's great yeah. when you can see, uh, you know, like these superstar athletes who overcome you know challenges and stuff it is amazing and it's inspiring but yeah. it doesn't mean that you know the average schmo is going to be able to just dream that their you know that their bank account is not going to be a problem for them yeah. when we know darn well <laughs> like well, oh that dream is just a dream <laughs> i've seen i've seen some of the the results of the you know like the self-esteem movement for for example uh, for 10 summers i taught at the the university of new hampshire in it was just a summer program um, for kids who were from low-income families to help prepare them for for college. And I was the course I was teaching was included some some meditation as a personal development tool, um, and it also involved um, uh, study skills uh, as well. So there were a lot of kids, particularly boys who were just convinced that all they had to do was believe in themselves and they were going to do well. You know, like self-esteem was everything. As long as you were confident going into the quiz, you were going to do fine. Right. And no amount of failing quizzes, no amounts of, of <laughs> Fs would convince them that they actually had to learn something, <laughs> which, you know, surprisingly enough, does have a big influence on, on how well you do in, in tests. I mean, I'm sure that self-esteem has at least a little to do with it. 
But if you look at actual experience, I mean, I think there's probably no one who has been to college who does not have the experience of having either gone into an exam thinking they were going to do really well and they bombed or they went into an exam thinking they were going to fail and to the surprise they did really well. You know, so so what's the role of belief in there? You know, maybe it has some small impact on on your performance, but actually knowing stuff, uh, you know, actually having you know, mastered the the subject matter has a huge influence, a much much bigger influence. So that that's a an area I think where the kind of the self esteem movement actually trips people up. All you got to do is believe in yourself. All you got to do is you know, think think you're fantastic. You just got to think you're gonna you're gonna pass, and everything's gonna be okay. And it's self sabotaging. Most people don't do the work that's necessary in order to succeed. Yeah, and it's it's honestly so difficult to convince people of of the realities when every once in a while people are just they, you know, the, they've inherited their path of you know wealth or fame or you know the presidency or you know whatever it is um it's yeah no nobody achieves that kind of stuff in a vacuum it's you know there's a lot a lot more hands involved um i did want to mention one of my favorite quotes though from from the book um where you know since we're talking about teachings and um you know whether or not uh, things that we've learned were ever true uh, this this one comes up over and over again and i love it i don't know i don't know why and i don't know what the, what it says that i love this one so much when the student is ready the teacher will appear oh yeah yeah that's a I, fantastic one yeah i've I, yeah i've been told that um by many yoga teachers and um, even art art related teachers, and it's like you know, you know, not only what does it mean, but um, mm-hmm. like it, it it was not f- from the Buddha. <laughs> no, no, it it, it wasn't. Um, but it's one of those things where there's there's a kind of a grain of truth to it because you know it's been it's well known that right. if something is of significant to you, then you'll pay more attention to it. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So, you know, the, the common example that, that I give is, you know, if you have just bought a blue Subaru, you're going to start seeing blue Subarus everywhere. It's like they were invisible to you before because they weren't significant, but now you've bought a blue Subaru, you're going to start noticing them all over the place. If you're interested in a particular topic, like, I'm interested in self-compassion. You know, I start noticing uh, things uh, to do with self-compassion, either stories that people tell or articles that that I come across online. They kind of stand out for me in a way that they didn't before. So there's a kind of degree of, of truth there that when we're interested in something, we'll tend to, to notice opportunities for uh, pursuing that. But you know, it's it's one of those quotes where, uh, you know, I've no doubt it's it's often not true that you you really right. are ready, uh, but it just you you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, uh, for example, and you know you don't have access to to the information or to the teacher or whatever. It can yeah. almost be like blaming people for 
not finding a teacher. Well, obviously you weren't ready. Uh, <laughs> it's your fault. Yeah, but that's, that's just it. I think it only comes up when you've met a teacher, like when you've met someone in that role, that mentorship role. It's, you know, again, oh, right. I think I've heard it in like a martial arts setting too. You right. know, it's like, it only comes up when, when someone's pointing it out. Like, so well, it's, it's, con- it's confirmation bias then, isn't it? Yeah. So you, yes. come ac- you come across something that's useful to you and you say, well, I was really ready for that. Thank goodness that appeared. But what about all the times when you were ready for something and it didn't appear? You don't go, oh, wow, that's amazing. You know, when the student's ready, the teacher doesn't appear. You know, you don't do that. <laughs> yeah. No, you don't. So it's, Never. it's what they call confirmation bias. You just, uh, you're, you're seeking out information that confirms what you already believe. And uh, yeah, and, and so some of these um, these facts that you point out in here are truly revealing. Like, um, are you okay on time? I just want to check. You're... Uh, yeah, I probably need to get going soon. I uh, do have work to okay. do. Okay. Um, the, it was, we were talking about things like Brainy Quote and Quotes Creator apps and, and stuff like that. Um, discovering this. I just want to say character because I don't know this person who went by the, by the name Osho. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. He's in my book quite a bit. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what's interesting is I also sent around a questionnaire to my fellow yoga teachers to, um, you know, to use on social media, like to post like their favorite quotes and stuff like that. And one of them had mentioned an Osho quote and I was just, I had finished reading this book and I was like, Oh no, do I tell her that this Osho person, like the reality of this or, or not? Um, so for those who don't know, should we fill in some of the details? Yes, please fill in the details of of this and please stop quoting Osho then. (laughs) Well, I don't know. I mean, I think you can, you can quote people even, if um yeah there's things about them that uh were yeah nobody's savory so yeah. you know he he was a, an indian uh, teacher i think he was a very uh you know talented uh very you know, like, talented speaker even quite early on and very interested in spirituality um he first of all went by the name the uh, bhagwan shri rajneesh and he i don't think he had many indian people who followed him um, but he was very influential amongst um, uh, young Westerners, and he preached a, a philosophy of free love, basically. So it was very kind of you know, hippie uh, sort of stuff. Uh, he moved to the U.S. and was uh, well, very much like some of these televangelists, uh, I guess. He was very interested in impressing people with the amount of uh, you know wealth that he could amass, and so. Uh, I think he had something like 21 white Rolls Royces. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's just insane. And they started building this uh, this ashram, which was really uh, an, a, a small, an, not so small actually, a, a substantial unofficial town in Oregon. And they didn't have planning permission. It wasn't zoned. <laughs> they just put up buildings. For, for any, yeah, they just, you know, they, it was growing. It was huge. They had vast amounts of money pouring in and they were just building this large complex, basically a, a, a town. And uh, because they didn't have any you know, permission for, for doing this, they, the local uh, town became concerned and they were going to be passing ordinances ruling that this was not legal, etc. And there was going to be a big vote on it. And in order to throw off the vote, uh, the uh, Osho community in uh, Oregon 
I actually carried out a campaign of um, biological warfare. Uh, they went around all the, the restaurants and they uh, seeded all the salad bars, etc. with, uh, I think it was the E. coli, in order oh to God. make as many people in the town sick on voting day as they possibly could. So it was the first modern day use of biological weapons on, uh, on US soil. And there were all, all kinds of other things going on, you know, like, you know, they got Al Capone for his taxes. What they got Al, uh, Osho for was uh, immigration offences. They brought lots yeah. of people into the country um, without going through the you know, due immigration process. So he was deported. Uh, he changed his name to Osho after, uh, after he was uh, deported. And then he yeah, ended quite a sad character. Um, a, a, according to people who had contact with him, um, his meditation practice was so powerful. I don't know whether this is people's imagination, but people who were sitting in the same room at him said they could like feel these vibes of peace and love coming off him. So he's, you know, he started off as it seems this really, you know, powerful meditator, and he ended up uh, sniffing nitrous oxide to get high. Wow! Uh, this is according to one of his unofficial biographers, who was a, a Scotsman. Uh, I think called Hugh Milne, wrote a book called uh, The God That Failed. And according to Milne, uh, Osho ended up, he he bought a dentist's chair because it was the most (laughs) convenient place for sniffing uh, nitrous oxide. But, you know, that's kind of how far he fell. It's sort of a, you know, a a breaking bad of spirituality. (laughs) That's what it sounds like. It does. Well, I love I love the show Breaking Bad because I see it as being a really brilliant exploration of karma. It, uh, it is oh, one yeah. small choice, for example, you know, not to tell your wife that you've got cancer, uh, kind of can yeah. completely snowball into a whole world of dishonesty, um, you know, drug production, uh, killing, etc. Yeah, it was uh, it was quite the story arc. I'm glad we both like TV. um so before you go uh because you know as i i don't know if i mentioned um that that people can hear your meditations on insight timer which is um an app uh now i i only recently started using it because i finally got a phone that could handle another app My, my other phone was totally maxed out um so you have insight timer and i love that um in the in the back of i can't believe it's not buddha you um you know you, you go into great detail about people who have helped you along the way you you mentioned um the three contemporary translators that you call the oh, yes. the league of extraordinary is it bikus bikus yeah actually bikus. the league of extraordinary gentle bikus i probably should gentle. have said gentle monks because that sounds more like gentlemen but yeah I, I made much I, I made my editorial choice and i have to stick with it and yeah well you can change that in the next book then yeah, but perhaps. it's it's yeah as we said there's so much work that goes into into creating content and books um so what is this how do you create the work for insight do you is that on a schedule or do you just have like just the ones that are up there is like it for now uh, oh that's kind of it for now i'm not really putting any energy into uh insight timer at the moment i mean the insight timer is a really fantastic thing um i mean they've got 
I don't know, more than a million people, I think, using the app. Um, it's built largely on meditation teachers making their work freely available, which is a great thing to do. But it also can tend to kind of, you know, undermine, uh, you know, if we're selling CDs or MP3s or something like that as part of our attempts to, to make a living, it can kind of undermine part of that. So I've got quite a bit of content in, uh, in Insight Timer and I'll leave that there. I also have my own app, uh, by the way. Oh, called, you do? Yeah, I'm a terrible marketer, apparently, because I've never mentioned <laughs> this to you. But I have a, an app called Body Mind, uh, which at the moment, I'm afraid, is only available for um, for iPhone or iPad. Well, um, that's why. Damn it. Yeah, I know. Uh, if I can get the resources together, then I will definitely be bringing out uh, an Android version of that. But it costs quite a lot of money to, to bring out uh, an app. Um, part of that app is going to be uh, a series of meditations called Sitting with Body, which is going to be a, a daily series of very short meditations, which are designed to just launch you into your meditation practice. So you'll be able to decide how long you want to meditate for and set a timer for that length of time, say half an hour or 20 minutes. And the first 10 minutes of that will be me uh, guiding you into a meditation and just encouraging you to continue practicing that until uh, the bell rings. So um, uh, that's not quite available on the app at the moment, but version two, which will be coming out in the next month or two, will will have that feature in it. And is that one of um, the kind of app that you um, that's like free to download and then you pay for stuff, or is it like pay yeah. every month no matter what? No, this is. Uh, so this is one of those freemium apps. So yeah, you can download yeah. the the app for free. The, there will always be a certain amount of content, uh, quite quite a bit of content, more than is on Insight Timer that's available uh, free and uh, for a, a, a small subscription, I think it's $5 a month or something, you'll have access to a library of several hundred guided meditations that I've recorded. It rather astonishes me that I've recorded so much. Uh, and these uh, daily meditations. That's really exciting. I'm excited. And yeah, I mean, and there's hopefully, a, you know, financing opportunity. Maybe you can, I don't know, go to Kickstarter or something. And uh, well, yeah, I did that to get the app started in, in the first place. Yeah. Just, yeah. Just managed to get enough money uh, together to uh, pay a developer to uh, create the app. That's awesome. Yeah, All right. right. Well, um, so where can people find you and your information? Right. Okay. Um, my main website, which again, we have completely forget, forgot to mention until this point, is wildmind, wildmind.org. And uh, that's where you'll find, there's quite a lot of material about meditation there. I have a blog there. I have some static resources that will you know, guide you through uh, various, learning various forms of uh, meditation as well. Also, uh, news about uh, you know, online meditation courses and uh, you know, publications and other things that I'm doing. And I do have a personal site as well, which is uh, bodhipaksha.com, and people can get the spelling of that, no doubt, from... From, yes. uh, from the notes show notes on your on your podcast <laughs> show notes that's what they're called uh, and of course there's fakebuddhaquotes.com yeah fakebuddhaquotes.com as well which is where I blog about these uh, spurious quotations 
I I just absolutely love that this <laughs> that I got the opportunity to read this this book through NetGalley. Glad you liked it. Um, let me see if I can even find. Do you know the publication date off the top of your head? Yes, I do. November. Of it's uh, no, uh, it's November the sixth, and it's published November's- by Parallax Publications. And I believe that Barnes and Noble have ordered lots and lots of copies. So uh, that would be a good place to to buy it. And you know, if people want to buy stuff on Amazon, that's that's great. But uh, I really believe in supporting uh, small local independent bookstores. So. Um, it'd be great to give your bookstore a, a call and ask them to to get a copy for you. Yeah, and and it should be very easy to for them to look it up. It's called "I Can't Believe It's Not Buddha," yeah. and uh, you know, subtitle: "What Fake Buddha Quotes Can Teach Us About Buddhism." It's uh, honestly, I it's like you're learning and you don't even know that you're that it's that you're learning. It's so exciting, and like you said, toilet humor is great. You know, just sitting sitting there in the bathroom and and perusing through this every you know a little bit every day, and it's you know, or you know, you can just enjoy it in bed like I did, which is it was really good to de stress with this. Great, I'm glad I can inform and entertain. Yeah, and it's just you know maybe because I, I'm I'm a person who loves quotes and doesn't remember them. Like I don't I don't I, other brainy people like they they work quotes into conversation and they can tell you exactly who said it and whatnot. And I don't do that. I like looking up quotes and um, making the little images and memes for Instagram. I think that's fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, but. Bodhi Pakshit has been a tremendous delight and I'm so glad that you're you're doing well and that there's hopefully, fingers crossed, a book on self-compassion going to come out. Yeah, fingers crossed. Thank you. Yes. Um, so uh, other than Bodhi's websites and stuff, you can learn more about me, of course, on the Twitter is... Uh, my name is never the same anywhere. So on Twitter, it's at Elizabeth Amber. On Instagram, it's at Amber Unmasked, which is mostly cat pictures. And um, AmberUnmasked.com for everything else. And thank you again to the Patreon supporters for making this happen. 